Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, let's begin with an introduction this morning. If you'd stand to your feet, I'm going to invite my friend Jeff Swart is going to come up to lead us in our scripture reading. Yeah, show him some love. Show him some love. That is not where that mic should go. Good, so good. good thing Jeff's on our AV team. Okay. Um, All right, so Ephesians chapter 6, turn there with Jeff and I. Jeff's going to lead us in our reading. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness and the heavenly places. Excuse me. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, our God in heaven, Jesus, our Savior, We come to you right now, our eyes are on you, and we see you as Christus Victor. You are the victorious one with whom there is no rival. You have no competitor. With you, there's no equal. As we just sang, you are the name above all names, God. And we're on your team. You have saved us and rescued us. Your word says that you have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of your son, of his love. And that's our position this morning. We've learned all about this. But this morning, God, especially, as we uh, peer into what your word has to teach us about spiritual conflict, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be our strength, that you would be our teacher, that you would be our guide, Lord, I'm here as a fellow learner in this community seeking to follow you and know you and to Jesus walk in the victory you've afforded us, that you've provided us. And so, God, thank you. Thank you. I think of Paul's words. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph. And this morning, God, would you take us further in that as you equip us with the knowledge of your word. We pray now with supplication in the spirit, as your word says, God, that you would lead us and speak to us. I ask God that you would be here and that you would teach us, that you would be strong for us here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Okay. All right. Well, this morning, as we get back into the book of Ephesians here each week, remember in Ephesians... We are exploring a different aspect of life in Christ. That's our position through the gospel, and that is the theme of Ephesians. Paul is seeking to open our eyes to all the realities of being in Jesus. And, of course, in this section and for the next few weeks, we're discussing the topic of warfare in Christ. Warfare in Christ. Um, You know, this is consistent with the book of Ephesians so far. So far... Paul, if you could kind of summarize what he's been up to in this book and what God has been up to in our lives as we've been studying Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians is really about helping us see things for what they really are. Helping us see things for what they really are. Uh, Chapters 1 through 3 is all about seeing the gospel and the good news of Jesus for what it really is as good news. Uh, The the book of Ephesians has helped us see who we are in Christ and, and who we really are in him. The theme of Ephesians is revelation, seeing clearly. Uh, We get through chapter 4 through 6, and it's been all about seeing who we've been called to be. The the true reality of of the life that God has called us to. Uh, The book of Ephesians has been all about clarity. Paul has been helping us see things for what they truly are, and that can't be any more true than this section here at the end of Ephesians. Where Paul is not just showing us Um, the reality of how things really are, but but he's showing us those things within the context of something greater. How things really are within the broader context of the spiritual world. 
That's what Paul describes here. At the end of Ephesians, it's like Paul has done his work to describe the application of the gospel in the life of the Christian. He's described what we've been called to. And now Paul, as he finishes, having given all that context, is going to zoom out for help, to help us see our lives within a larger context. And that context that we find ourselves in even today is the context of, as Chip Ingram calls it, an invisible war being raged in an invisible world. It's a war that, that Paul describes here between the spiritual forces of good and the spiritual forces of evil. So Paul's like, let's zoom out from everything we've talked about, and I want you to see your life within the context of a greater conflict. It's a conflict that's echoed all throughout the scriptures. It's not just a theme of the Bible. It could be argued that it's one of the meta-narratives, the overall storylines of the, the Bible and of history, which is a spiritual conflict in the spiritual world that is um, as much, if not more, real than the physical world around us. The Bible teaches that there is an interwoven uh, reality to the spiritual world and the physical world. And often what's happening in the physical world is a mirror of conflicts even happening in the spiritual world. Now, this, this is tough for, for most of us. We're uh, intellectuals, right? <laughs> We're 21st century um, sophisticated Americans. And uh, uh, we, we, we try to do everything we can to explain away evil with natural reasons. We look to, to psychological causes. We look to social structures, and, and though those things can interplay and they can work with evil and work against the purposes of God, um, the ancient world had no problem with understanding the root cause of all of those things to be a spiritual problem. Like the spiritual world, though it might be foreign to us, it's not foreign to, listen, most of the ancient world and even, listen, most of the modern world. All around the world today, whether it's different religions and worldviews, there's this assumption that there's a spiritual battle, that there's a spiritual world, that there's more to this world. As, as one podcaster says, the world is more than just stuff. I like that. There's something else going on. There's more to the story. You, you could say it this way. From the Bible's perspective, evil is deeper, it's larger, and it's broader than mere material explanations. There's a spiritual battle, a spiritual conflict. We see that from page one to even the very end, we see this war that's being raged that not only are we affected by, but here's Paul's key point here in Ephesians 6. Uh, you and I are not only um, participants in this war. We're not only those that are affected by this spiritual battle, but as followers of Jesus, we are on the front lines of this battle. We're not civilians. We're not those that are passively spectating what's going on. We are thrust headlong into the midst of this battle. Look at what Paul says in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2. He says to Timothy, you must endure hardship. Notice this, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. This is who you are from God's perspective. You're in a war, and you're a soldier. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. See, wartime doesn't call for the liberties and the privileges of being a civilian, of just kind of acting like you can live your life however you want. There's a context here that Paul kind of turns up. It's almost like he turns up the heat a little bit for us to see that, that in Jesus, whether we choose to fight or not, we're in a battle. It's a spiritual battle that Christ has enlisted us in, and we're called to please him who enlisted us. This is what Paul is saying here in these verses that we just read. It's really interesting language. Paul's writing to the Christian. And he tells the Christian, calls the Christian to be strong, to stand against the attacks. And here's why. Because we don't wrestle against, he says, flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, the key idea here is where Paul says that we are wrestling against more, we are battling against more than flesh and blood. The, the word used there, wrestle, is a really interesting word. It's an intentional word. It, it's a word that described hand-to-hand -hand combat in ancient Greece. It, it was a type of, I guess you could think of like MMA type of thing, 
where it was this martial art that would involve two people fighting until one, one person could hold the other down, pin them down and cause them to tap out. And Paul says about you and I that that's our lives in Christ. You ever felt that way? You ever felt like you were in a cage match with something more than yourself? That you were battling, wrestling, this almost like physical and difficult and overpowering challenge. And the end goal of this is for one person to pin the other down and succeed in victory. Uh, This is what Paul is echoing again, that we are in this battle. Uh, What's amazing about this, though, this, you know, just this idea of warring against spiritual forces. Good morning. Welcome to church. You're in a battle against spiritual forces. What's amazing about these verses here is the context that they fall in. The context of Ephesians 6 is not these great, big, spiritual, demonic events that come up every now and then in your life that are out of the ordinary, that require you to win the MMA match, that require you to do battle against the devil. The context of Ephesians 6, listen, is going to work. It's raising your kids. It's building a marriage. Paul has just finished chapters 5 and 6 talking about marriages in Christ. He's talked about the goal of raising your children to follow Jesus. He's talked about what it means to go to work in a way that's meaningful. And then he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That's the context of the spiritual battles. The spiritual battle happens in everyday life. It's everyday life, an everyday battle against these spiritual forces. Now, The vision that Paul gives us as those that are engaged in this war as good soldiers of Jesus is a vision of victory. He calls the Christian in the midst of the reality of this spiritual battle that exists for your, uh, the enemy existing for your own peril, the call here is to, and he uses this word over and over again, five times in three verses, the call is to stand. To stand your ground. The idea there is to not lose ground, but to continue to take ground, to be successful, to be triumphant, to have victory in the battle. That's the vision he gives. The the idea here is this. Listen, it's not an unwinnable war. A lot of times, I think the way that we can think about spiritual warfare is we can think about it as like it's a losing battle before I even begin because all I can know is defeat. And that can obviously play into the tactics of the enemy to where that's what he feeds in our minds. But this is an unwinnable battle. All I know is tapping out, and maybe you feel sometimes. But I love the right thinking that Paul gives us here. The calling and the way forward is to stand strong, to be victorious because of the power of God in our lives. But what a vision and and what a call. We're going to see the reason why there's context here is because we're on the winning team, okay? That's the big idea of this. Um, We're on a, a winning team. In fact, even how we should think about spiritual warfare as a church is the way that Jesus talked about it. Jesus said that he's going to build his church, and then he used this really interesting phrase. And he said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's intentional language because gates are defensive measures. You have a gate up to keep things from, from, forti- uh, from coming into the fortress, or to fortify and protect. Jesus doesn't say that hell is not going to prevail against the church. The language he used describes how God's kingdom is actually the one on the offense. It's not that we live, and sometimes we can think this way about spiritual warfare, it's like the devil's out there to get us, and Jesus is like, be careful, okay? Hunker down, okay? Bunker up and fight. And it's this like defensive measure. No, the idea there is just stand strong as the kingdom of God advances through your life. You're on the winning team is the idea. And victory is the certain future for God's people. Now, we, we want to win this war. We want to face this, the, uh, these battles in, in, in a, with a mindset of victory. And so Paul's going to help us get there for the next few weeks. We're going to be exploring more of how God's word equips us to do that. Um, but to kind of give an introduction, we're going to look at a couple of the key ideas that Paul gives us here to start that are, are going to help us move forward as we face these spiritual battles. There's some key things that we need to know in order to walk in victory. And so here's a couple of things. Let's start with the first thing that Paul gives us. Uh, the first encouragement that Paul would call us to do is to recognize the enemy. This is where we have to start. When we think about our lives in the context of the spiritual conflict as someone who's enlisted in the spiritual battle, 
There's no option for the sidelines. I'm either taking ground or losing ground. And the first thing that Paul would have us do in this section is he makes the effort to help Christians recognize the enemy. And, and notice in this passage that for Paul, the, the enemy that we're facing is not like just some general, vague, spiritual evil force, like bad energy. That's really pop, you know, popular these days. Like, I got some bad juju coming my way. Like, I got to fight the bad energy. Or we can even think that way about spiritual forces. Like, it's just this, like, uh, this, this, this force. We can think that way, that it's this vague spirituality coming against me. No, Paul makes great effort to remind us of a key point. That our real enemy in life, listen, is a real enemy. Our real enemy is a real enemy. He names him here. He says that we're called to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, I think C.S. Lewis said it best in his book, Screwtape Letters, the introduction to that book, which is a really helpful, it's fictional, but it's written to give insight to the potential tactics of the enemy in attacking God's people. And in the introduction of the book, C.S. Lewis speaking about the devil and speaking about spiritual warfare, he says this. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, humanity, can fall about the devils and the demons. He says, one is to disbelieve in their existence. That's kind of the American way, like, come on, a devil, like Will Ferrell, SNL, like, that's not real, okay? The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I love this. He says this, C.S. Lewis says, they themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and will hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. So, so this is the enemy's goal. It's like either to get us too, up, you know people that are like obsessed with the devil. It's like, you, be more obsessed with Jesus. Let's do that, okay? He's the focus. So there's a danger there to where like you blame everything on him. And we, we, we can't do that. We, we have to take responsibility, okay? Satan was deeply involved in the fall of man, but humans have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, in fact, the way the scriptures describe it is our fight is, is, is against the flesh, it's against the world, and then behind that, it's against the devil. And so, this is really important. I think sometimes, I think in reaction to the world, the world only wants to give naturalistic explanations to evil. And so the Christians come on the scene and we're like, no, it's the devil, it's only the devil, it's always the devil. It's like, no, like maybe what you're saying is spiritual warfare is just the reminder that like you need to take a nap and eat a good meal. Do you know what I'm saying? That was me the other day. I'm just like, this is warfare. I'm like, wait, I haven't eaten in a little while. Is this warfare or is this a lack of Chipotle? I'm, I, I'm trying to figure it out. Now, there's many natural remedies to the oppression, to the depression, to the problems that we go through. But what the Bible is telling us is that let, don't be a magician, but woe to you who lives like a materialist. And what you're going to do is when you have a Satanless gospel, you're going to make everything and everyone else the enemy. You're forgetting that you have an enemy. And he's not a vague force. He's a real spiritual being. A real spiritual being. Here um, in Ephesians 6, Paul calls him the devil. In other passages, he's referred to as Satan, as Lucifer. What I love about the scripture's description of him is they're often like digs. Like, like, like um, the scripture is, is, is very keen to give him these titles that define more of who he is and what he's like. Satan, Lucifer, Beelzebub, or Lord of the Flies, Belial, the evil one, Jesus calls him. The prince of this world, Paul calls him in Ephesians 2. The accuser of the brethren, the tempter, the serpent, the dragon, Paul calls him the false masquerading angel of light in 2 Corinthians. Many different names for the same individual. Uh, Satan, a, a fallen, listen, created angelic being. Uh, the scripture tells in Ezekiel that, that Lucifer was created as one of God's most glorious and, and prized creations. Uh, as a cherub, he held uh, not just a seat of great beauty. Some, some believe he was a worship leader in heaven. But there's this really, and I can't get into, again, this is one of those things where it's like, I want to say everything about this. But the, the scriptures describe that like when God created the world, um, he, he, he created like a staff team 
to help him run it. These spiritual hosts that he would delegate different authority to in different regions and different parts of the world, that's still true today. And Satan, in a sense, was like God's chief of staff. And what happened with Lucifer, the Bible teaches, is that this, this created being with, listen, great power and influence, he exalted himself in opposition to God out of jealousy and pride, seeking a greater glory. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to be second in command, right? It wasn't enough to not be in charge. He needed to be as high as God. And this is what Isaiah gives it to us kind of poetically. Isaiah tells us about Lucifer. This is a poem about him. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down from the ground, you who weakened the nations? There's so much to say there about how Satan is at work, even in the systems of the world, in the structures of the world, in the nations of the world. For you have said in your heart, here's these I will statements. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. That's God's position over the people on the farthest sides of the earth. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds into God's place. I will be like the most high. Does that sound a lot like the temptation that he put before Adam and Eve in the very beginning? It's his same heart. It's that same spirit. So this is who, who Paul is, de is describing here in these verses. Satan, this created, powerful, real being who seized his own autonomy in, in rebellion against authority, and he's existing currently in opposition to God and his purposes. That's a, a key point about the enemy. Satan is motivated. He's motivated by a hate for God which is why he exists to oppose the purposes of God. That's why with every great work of God, like starting a church, for example, there is an expectation that if you're setting out to follow God into what he has for you, you better expect resistance. You better expect opposition. Opposition can often be discouraging. Like, am I doing this right? But, but from a scripture's perspective, opposition should be encouraging. You know what I'm saying? It's a validation of your value. It means that God is up to something, and what's valuable in the kingdom is vulnerable. It's vulnerable. That's why Satan attacked and tempted Jesus right before the start of his public ministry. Maybe you've, maybe you've sensed that before. The greatest kind of like weight of attack often comes before something big that God is up to and something that he's doing. And this is how Satan postures and positions himself out of hate for God and opposition to God and not just opposed to the purposes of God, but vehemently opposed to the people of God. Now, Satan hates all people. He hates humanity. There's many reasons why, but I like Jonathan Thompson's reason in his book, Deliverance. He says, one of the main reasons, well, he kind of gives two, but I'll give one. He says, one of the main reasons why Satan hates people is because when he sees us, he sees the image of God. We remind him of the creator. He especially hates Christians. Now, why is that? Because if you look at what Satan's kind of been up to in the world through his deception and his lies, what he sought to do, because, he, again, he hates God. He hates humans that bear the image of God. So throughout history, most, by the way, sin, we know sin. Sin is, we know sin. Sin, we do, unfortunately. Sin is basically the poison that, that comes into our life to deform us away from reflecting God. That's what unholiness does. That's what sin does. Uh, one of the, 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 the saddest examples of, of, of the fall of man tearing a person apart is in the Gospel of Mark, when there's this demoniac man that has been so assaulted by the enemy that he barely resembles a human anymore. This is like Satan's goal in the world, is to dehumanize humanity. To, where, where God is in spirit, the business of spiritual formation, making us more like Jesus, Satan is in the business of spiritual deformation. I don't, I don't want to see the image of God. Let's, def, let's get humanity to live apart from God as much as possible, to have them define their own sexual identity, to have them define their own moral identity, to have them set the rules themselves, because the more they go down that track, the less they look like the creator. So, so this is, is what he's up to. Now, he has great power in accomplishing this. He's been doing this, as we even saw there in Isaiah. He's weakened the nations in this cause. And I want to point out that he, he hasn't done it alone. This is key angelology, key theology here about Satan. He's not a solo operator. 
Uh, in fact, in Scripture, he's more like a chief military strategist who's organized powers. There are other angels that have joined the rebellion of Satan. Um, and it kind of, it, it tends to parallel the rebellion of humanity. We, we've all kind of joined this rebellion against God. And, and there's a, a collection, a handful, a, a numerous uh, army described here of demonic beings that exist to accomplish the evil will of Satan on the earth. It's like a, it's like a counterfeit version of God and his angels. Uh, Satan is not uh, omnipresent. We know this. He's not God. He's a created being. But he's able to be in most places, we can almost say everywhere, through the powers that are under his authority. Uh, that's what Paul describes here. I mean, it's interesting. Do you see like the titles he's racking up? It's almost like he wants us to have a sobering perspective of these spiritual things. To not just be like, oh, they're nothing. I can, you know, I'm strong enough. I'm... Paul's like, before you get to work, before you get to fighting, you need to know your enemy. You need to know who you're up against. And so he uses this language, these principalities, these powers, these rulers of the darkness of this age. Now, I think this is literal, first of all. I do believe that there are literal demonic powers over specific ge geographical regions. This is what scripture seems to teach. In the book of Daniel, Daniel gets a vision of this, that there are rulers and authorities that have great influence on the direction and the, and the, the, um, uh, the wind of culture. And they're kind of blowing the wind. Uh, but this is also... Uh, this is military language that Paul's using. Spiritual hosts of wickedness. Now, we think of hosts, we think of like, you know, your grandma or something, right? Like, little entomans, you know what I'm saying? Like, come on in, all right? <laughs> all right? But hosts, our English word hosts, it's, it, it's not the best word. It literally is armies, legions, forces. There's militaristic language. And so we've got to start by doing this. We've got to do what Paul leads us to do. We need to recognize our enemy. This is real. This is what 1 Peter 5.8 says. So you know I'm not making this up. Paul says, or Peter writes this, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Not knowing that you have an enemy is the first step to losing the battle. And how easy, how easy is it to forget? I can't tell you how many times in Brittany and I's marriage that we just said, there's a devil, I forgot. Do you know what I'm talking about? That this is more than, like, I can be an enemy, Brittany. I know that, okay? But there's more than us in this relationship. There's more going on. There's more to the story. Remembering that there's a real spiritual enemy. Remembering his purpose, his plan to steal, kill, and destroy. Knowing that he's been mobilized against us. And we cannot think of him wrongfully. We can't think of the cartoon with the pitchfork. Again, we can't think of Will Ferrell on SNL. We, we can't have these images in our head. When we think of, of the devil, we, we need to think of like the greatest salesman that you could ever imagine, who, who's also a great military leader and strategist. I and mean, that's the picture that scripture get, gives us, these organized powers and forces. And I'll, I'll say one last thing about this as, before we move on. These are the two key things that we need to know about these spiritual forces. The agenda is death. And the method is deception. Everywhere that Satan sees life or the potential for life, he seeks to bring death. Life reflects, human life reflects the goodness and glory of God. Satan's chief goal is to do everything he can to snuff out life. Whether it's your own spiritual life or the life of a newborn in the womb. He is the master of death. He perpetuates death. He, per he, he, he promotes death. He seeks to steer nations to become cultures of death. It, it, it contradicts who Jesus is, right? He's the author of life. Anybody thankful for the life that Jesus has brought into their life? Anybody thank, does anybody in here know what it's like to have been dead in your sins? But God, you've made us alive with you. See, God brings life. The enemy, he counters life with death. How, how can we destroy and deform the image of God? Jesus says, I have come that you might have life. 
and life more abundantly. And he contradicts that with the enemy who's come to steal, kill, and destroy. How does he do this? He does this through the tactic of deception. Truth leads to life. Lies lead to death. Truth leads to life. Believing lies about yourself, about God, about the world leads to death. Jesus says this about the devil. Like, if we're going to listen to anybody's words about the devil, like, before you go on YouTube or something and find someone weird, don't do that, okay? Read your Bible. (laughs) That's a good place for this, right? And in John 8, Jesus says this to the Pharisees. He's like, you're just like your daddy. That's what he says. You're of your father, the devil. Look at Jesus, meek and mild, all right? And the desires of your father you want to do. So Jesus is empowering these forces of evil, even in his time. He says this about Satan, that he was a murderer from the beginning. He sought to bring death from the very beginning, death to what God was creating. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him, none whatsoever. When he speaks a lie, Jesus says, he speaks from his own resources. I think the NIV says he speaks his native tongue. It's his first language is lying. That's what devil means, slanderer, liar, for he is a liar and he's the father of it. Jesus says this to us about the enemy. Um, John Mark Coburn, in his book, Live No Lies, I highly recommend this book to navigate this journey, one of the many resources. Here's how uh, John Mark Comer um, uh, basically lays out how, how the enemy often works in the world and in a culture. Uh, we tend to focus a lot on the world, the, the, the sociological issues, or we focus on the flesh and the psychological, and those are all parts of it, but behind it, is a lying devil. Behind it is a spiritual force, Paul says. Okay? Um, the devil starts by sowing from the very beginning, and still today, he sows deceptive ideas that contradict the truth in the word of God. The very first question in the Garden of Eden was, has God indeed said? I know that's the plain reading of the text, but did he really mean that? That's the popular question. Well, what did he mean? Maybe he meant what he said. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, well, my kids, what do you mean? I mean no, okay? There's <laughs> no conversation. Because I love you, right? You want to follow where I say yes, because it leads to life, right? Now, this, is, this is from the very beginning. He sows deceptive ideas. And these deceptive ideas were both about identity, sexuality, morality, origin, destiny, me, everything. All the ideas. They, they often play to disordered desires our fallenness. The reason why we believe so many of Satan's lies is because they, they itch our ears, don't they? They play to something maybe that we really wanted. And now I have an excuse to pursue. It's interesting how this works. It's warfare. They play to disordered desires. Then Comer says, Here's, if it, to make matters worse, it becomes normalized in a sinful world. It's hard enough doing battle with the devil in the flesh. But now you have a current of culture that's doing everything to encourage you to go in that direction away from God. It's a spiritual battle. There's spiritual forces. Paul wants us to recognize the enemy. Now, this is who he is. This is what he does. This is what he's up to. Bringing death through deception. Uh, And we don't want to underestimate him. We want to be sober and vigilant because this is our real enemy. Okay? Um, I like the way Chip Ingram says it. I'm just going to keep reading some stuff to you guys. Chip Ingram says this. In light of this context, I really like this in his book, The Invisible War. He says, our temptations are not random. Personalize this. The lies we hear, the conflicts we have with others, the cravings that consume us when we're at our weakest points, they're all part of a plan to make us casualties in the invisible war. They are organized below-the-belt assaults designed to neutralize the very people that God has filled with his awesome power. I, l- I love that, that mindset there. Your temptations, your trials, your struggles, they're not random. They're not just of you. They're spiritual. There's something more going on. So, so we need to have this healthy view, this biblical view. We need to have the same view of the devil that Christ has, which, which would first recognize him as a real enemy, a real formidable foe who, who's, who's purposed and organized and much more powerful than you or I. Yet. 
lest we have too high a view of this enemy, we must also, beyond remembering and recognizing our enemy, we must remember the victory. We don't want to have too low a view. We don't want to be a materialist. Nor do we want to elevate Satan beyond the reality of his position and his power. For example, we don't ever want to equate the authority and power of the devil with the authority and power of Jesus. Never do we want to make that false equivalence. That in some way, the devil is God's enemy like a, um, like a rivalry, you know? Like a good game between two teams, you're not sure who's going to win. That is not the story of the Bible. <laughs> Satan is our enemy. But in the contest, God doesn't really have any enemies. Do you know what I'm saying? God doesn't have anyone that threatens him. God doesn't have anyone that could come against him. God has no equal. So lest we have too high a view, we must remember the victory that is a central theme to what Christ has come to accomplish in this world. Satan is still a created being. In fact, I, I like the observation in 1 Peter 5. It says he roams about, this is a key, key word, like a roaring lion. Um, Satan is not the roaring lion, amen? Jesus is the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the true lion. Um, uh, in fact, the Bible says that those, um, uh, those who are bold in the face of evil, they're like a roaring lion. I love that. That's who we get to be. He's not the roaring He roams about like a roaring lion. Inasmuch as he wants to deceive you to think that you are more powerful than you really are, and he's stronger than you think, he also wants you to think that he is more powerful than he really is. He wants you to think that your sin and your shame and your story and your failures and your brokenness and all of the death and destruction he's brought, he wants you to think that that in some way is a match for Jesus. That that in some way is going to dominate your story. That there's somehow some sort of equal power. And the reminder to this is not that we chest bump ourselves in the mirror and say, I can win this battle. I can win this war. No, the, the mantra of the church is Christus Victor. Jesus has won. He has, he has been my victor for me. So, so it's not that I'm a conqueror. It's that I'm more than a conqueror. I'm more than a conqueror. Why? Well, a conqueror is someone who secures the victory of their own battles. But when you're more than a conqueror, you're a conqueror because someone else won the battle for you. You're more than conquerors, Paul says, through him who's loved us. In fact, that's the context of Ephesians. Um, Paul is not writing Ephesians 6, 10 through 13, like out of note. It's not this, this verse like most of the Bible, wasn't meant to be pulled out of its context and posted somewhere without any greater understanding of what's going on. Um, this verse, Ephesians 6.10, about these powers that we face, about the battle we face, we only should read Ephesians 6 as Christians after we have first read Ephesians 1. This follows Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 1, here's what Paul prays for you and I that are facing these spiritual battles. He says, therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Like you have faith and you have love, those are all good, but you need to see straight. You need to see rightly as things really are. So he prays that you and I, our eyes would be open, that, that we wouldn't just kind of like know vaguely, generally, informationally the things of God, but that we would so see with the eyes of our heart that the things of God would change our lives, that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you would know in the deepest parts of you what's the hope, what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saint, saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power Toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he, notice this, which he worked in Christ, the same power, when he raised him from the dead, follow this, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, ready? Far above, as we just sang, above all, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And every name that is named, there's a lot of names for the devil, they all bow under the authority of Jesus, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. 
and he, God, put all things under his, Jesus' feet. This is authority. This is rule and reign. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. That, that speaks to his power to supersede and go above and beyond the authority of the enemy. And he gave Jesus to be head over all things as a gift to us, the church. Paul has said in Ephesians 1 that there is power, there is authority, but that power has been vanquished in and through Jesus. And Jesus now rules and reigns through his work, seated on a throne above all of those authorities. They're under his feet. That's trash talk. It's also theological. It's also referential to the book of Genesis when the serpent would bruise his heel. But with his heel, he would crush the enemy's head. Now, what's amazing about Paul in Ephesians is Paul says that in Christ, you and I have also been raised up. This is cool. And Jesus is like, okay, so I've ascended above all authority. I've been seated at the right hand of the Father. All of those powers and those things that have been wreaking havoc, they're under me. They're under my feet. And my victory is your victory. Have a seat. I love this. He says, come take a seat over these things in me. This is the call. Uh, Now, we we see this modeled in the life of Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene, and you have to see the scriptures through the lens of the first century. It was a spiritual lens. It was a spiritual world. One of the the reasons why we struggle to believe this stuff is we don't live in a very hyper, we do in some ways have a, a spiritual culture, but a more materialistic culture. And so we don't believe it's the devil unless like someone's foaming at the mouth. You know what I'm saying? Or like someone's walking backwards upside down. Like those are kind of the things that we're like, oh, that's the devil. But I believe in our culture, because that's more normative in other cultures that have a spiritual expectation. In our culture, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And he is so content with us never seeing any demonic manifestation, but buying into every powerful lie of the devil. So it's hard for us to sometimes fathom these things. But Jesus came onto the scene, not in American culture, but in a first century spiritual culture. And most of his ministry involves stepping on the heads of his enemy. It's most of his ministry. These enemies that were oppressing God's people, oppressing God's creation, Jesus comes on the scene and he begins by showing that his power is greater than the power of the devil by casting out demons, by showing that the power of the kingdom cannot be stopped. The mark of one of the most greatest moments of victory is in the wilderness when Jesus is led by the spirit to be tempted by the devil. He's the second Adam. Where the first Adam failed in the garden, the second Adam succeeded in the wilderness. And Jesus overcame the assault. He stepped on the head of the devil with the Bible and used scripture to do battle with the enemy. And then Paul tells us in Colossians, it gets really cool. Satan begins to scheme and plot the death of Jesus because that's all he knows to do is to lie and bring death. So I was talking to actually Lee about this the other day. So he fills the heart of one of his followers. I know what I'll do. I'll get Satan to betray him so that he'll be killed. Little did Satan know that he was signing his own death certificate. He was actually plotting his own demise. As Christ goes to the cross, there was more going on than a first century teacher dying. This was the Messiah going to pay for the ultimate debt going to bridge the gap for the ultimate problem, going to destroy the works of the devil, sin and death in the world. So here's the way that Colossians says it. Some more Bible trash talk. Check us out. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. This is the good news of your life today. And Jesus, having forgiven you, you're forgiven of all your trespasses. Why is that? Well, Christ has wiped out the handwriting of requirements that were against us. The requirements to be in relationship with God, the requirements to be right with God. That honestly just reminded us of how much we fall short. And it separated us from God. And the enemy loves to uphold the holiness of God's standard to show us how we fall short of it. Loves to condemn and accuse. If he can't tempt you away from sin, he'll shame you. Or tempt you into sin, he'll shame you in your sin. The moral standard comes back all of a sudden. But through the cross, Jesus goes to the cross to make payment for our sins, to wipe out this 
writing of requirements because he's going to fulfill it himself in his own righteousness and take upon himself our failings. And Jesus, the Bible tells us this, he took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The, thing that, the one thing that kept us from God being righteous enough, Jesus fulfilled. And I love this. In doing so, he disarmed principalities and powers and he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. The word there, public spectacle, is a, a, it's language that's used in that century for how, like when one army beats another, how they will parade through the streets with the defeated army and be like, we won. And Jesus is like, that's, Paul says, that's what Jesus did on the cross. He, he not only disarmed the enemy, but he made a public spectacle of him. The, and this is what the enemy loves for us to do. He loves us to forget how publicly his defeat was how real his defeat is, how, how significantly um, effective the work of the cross is. One more for this. Hebrews says this, inasmuch as the children of, I love this one, have partaken of flesh and blood, Jesus also shared in flesh and blood that through death, this is so good, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. That, that was his tactic. He had sin that, that was the, the handwriting of requirements that showed me I could never be right with God. And Jesus deals with that on the cross where he takes our sin upon himself to gift us his righteousness through his love. But then there's also this other enemy we face, which is the consequence and wages of sin. It's death, this thing that's, that Satan perpetuates in the world. So Jesus also, I love this, through death, he destroyed him who had the, this is trash talk, who had the power of death, that is the devil, and released those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So I want you to think of Jesus like King David. King David unleashes a, a, a fatal blow to Goliath's head with his slingshot. But then Jesus walks up to Goliath's body and he finishes the job with Goliath's own weapon. He cuts off his head with his own sword. The writer of Hebrews says that's exactly what Jesus did to the devil through the resurrection. He took his weapon, sin and death, and he used it against him. He walked up to him and he cut off his head with his own sword. He overcame death so that we who are in Christ now, we're seated in these places. We're victorious. We're, we're with Jesus in that rightful place. Uh, this is the, the, the moral of the story is that Jesus wins. Amen? The moral of the story is Jesus wins that he's succeeded. There, there's so many great things that have been accomplished through the cross, but central to it is Christus Victor, that Jesus won, that Jesus defeated your and my enemies so that we are now more than conquerors through him. That's why the church is on the offensive. Now, at the same time, I know we recognize, first of all, what time it is, but we also recognize, we recognize maybe this question if Satan is so defeated, how come I still get defeated? You know what I'm saying? Like, yay, Jesus. But like, L me. You know what I mean? Like, and this is the context that Paul's writing into. Remember that we as Christians, we live in what's called the already not yet kingdom. So it means that the promises of the gospel over your and my life are as real today, listen, as they will be on that day. Yet here in this day, we must appropriate the truth of God. We must live in the not yet kingdom with already realities, amen? We must learn to navigate here and now in what Paul calls in this verse, remember what he says, he gives an important context. This spiritual fight that we're in is in the time that he calls the evil day. That's what we're in. That's where we are right now in history. It's like, what time in history are you on? It's a weird time in history, that's for sure. We're in the evil days. Where a losing enemy is ramping up his efforts because he knows he's lost. And, and kind of like your friend when you would push them into the pool, you know what I mean? What are they going to do? They're going to grab anyone and anything around them and bring that down with them. Christ has bound the strong man. And his weapons are not able to come against those who are in Christ in the gospel. 
Yet, he will do everything he can to take you out. He will unleash every strategy, every tactic, every method personally tailored to your weaknesses to keep you from what God has for you. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 4, 27, like these things are true, but don't give him a foothold. Don't give him any room. Don't give him an inch. He'll take a mile. And as we go on in the weeks to come, we're gonna talk about what it means to resist the strategies of Satan. This is gonna be the weeks ahead. We're gonna talk about how God's word equips us how here in the already not yet kingdom, uh, I like how John Mark Homer describes it. He says, the cross was the decisive victory like D-Day. Like remember on D-Day, the war was won, but the battle still raged. And as we're here in the meantime, after the decisive victory has been accomplished, we're still battling. We're called to stand ground. And by the power of the spirit, God is gonna equip us through his word to continue to resist those strategies, to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might to stand against the tactics. And we're going to see that the the way forward is not, again, through chest bumping ourselves in the mirror. It's not through being strong enough or smart enough, but it's through taking up the whole armor of God, through, through placing upon ourselves the resources that God has given us to deal with the onslaught. Uh, And the real idea there is that, you know, parents, you wrestle your kids. You ever do that? Me too. You let them win? Me neither. Now, I love wrestling my kids for fun. It's like, I think it's good for their development. Um, definitely helps them respect you a little bit more. And Judah's getting big. He's getting bigger. He's not there yet. He's 10, but he's got bony elbows. I'll tell you that. Where Penny and Evie was just kind of like, Ow! Well, Penny sometimes will come off the top window. Wait, I shouldn't talk about that. Now, um, Judah's getting to the point where it's like, that's a decent headlock, young man. I'm proud of you. But when we, when we talk about the spiritual battle, Paul's going to say this. It's not like a dad wrestling their kids. Now, don't tell my kids I use them as an illustration for the devil. Don't do that, okay? <laughs> They'll never know. But if I look at Jordan. He's a big guy. If I'm going to wrestle Jordan... I'm going to need some help, okay? I'm going to need some power, some strength beyond myself. And this is what Paul is going to call us to, to be strong in a grace and in a power that comes from God. We're going to go through the armor of God, and it's not, it's not meant to be a checklist. It's just meant to be what it means to have a dynamic relationship with Jesus and how that's our strength against the battle. Amen?